I got the sniffles this morning, so excuse my voice, but we will make it through. So a couple, just a little bit of housekeeping here I was thinking about. Uh, number one, if you're new here, we're so glad that you're with us. Don't feel compelled to give. But I, I realize that for some of you, if you've like been in the church and then kind of gone away from the church for a while, or perhaps it's your first time to venture into church at all, I know that one of the barriers sometimes can be this feeling that the church just wants my money. That's something as a pastor you hear sometimes, the church just wants my money. And so let me explain why we still take an offering, even though we know we're not in the business of putting barriers in front of people to make it harder for them to feel like they can engage with Jesus. But the reason we do that it's because for those of us who have trusted in Christ, who are part of the church, who this is our family, we recognize that this is a spiritual discipline that, that brings about two really good character qualities in us. One is generosity and the other is faith. When we, when we partake of the discipline of giving of what God has given to us, it grows our generosity because we're reminded of his generosity towards us. And then secondly, it builds our faith because we're reminded that we don't trust the number in our bank account, right church? That's not where our, right church? Yeah, there we go, good. There are new people listening to how, what you say there. Right, like we don't, we don't put our trust in the fact that my, the number in the account says this, right? And when we give of that, it reminds us, like when we lessen that number, it reminds us enough, like have faith, trust Jesus, trust him, he's the one. That's why we still do this, is, is why we always do it, it's part of our worship, because it's for those of us who are following Jesus. It, it's a spiritual discipline that builds gratitude, builds faith, it's necessary for us. Last little thing of housekeeping I wanted to make you aware of before we just dive right into the word today um, is that we are hosting a Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, how many of you are familiar with Voice of the Martyrs as an organization? Just a really wonderful organization that supports our persecuted brothers and sisters in parts of the, um, around parts of the globe where it is more difficult or persecution is a daily reality for them. We're hosting a Voice of the Martyrs conference here, a one-day deal. It's free of charge. just want to encourage you to be there. So it's the 16th. I think, yeah, we're putting it up here for you. You notice some of the faces are uh, blacked out there. That's because it's not always safe for those folks to be known. And so they'll be here with us that day. And and we just get to hear about the reality of trying to serve Jesus in some context where it's really hard and difficult. I, I guarantee you it will encourage your faith significantly. So let me just encourage you to think about being there that day. Again, one day deal. It is free, no ticket needed or anything. But, I, but go to the church website and register because we need to know how many to expect. So if you're gonna come, please do think about doing that through the church website. That way we can give Voice of the Martyrs a good reference point to say, hey, we're gonna have 500, we're gonna have 1,000, whatever. It just helps us for planning purposes. Okay, fair enough? Fantastic, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have gotten to sing, that we want to trust you. We sang that. We also sang of that First Thessalonians vision of your return on the day of the Lord, that you will return with the blast of a trumpet and the the shout of an archangel, that you will, as George said, split the skies and come down and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those of us who are alive on that day will be raised to meet with you in the heavens. What a good thing it is to remember that. We have hope because of that. We have hope. When we lose a loved one, we have hope because of that day. We have hope that we'll be a part of that day because of your grace, not because of our merit. And so Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd be our teacher today as we learn to live in the day that we're in now, eagerly awaiting that day. Would you teach us how? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Well, we've been in a series on the Holy Spirit, and we've been talking about the different work of the Spirit, and we've talked about, we come today to talk about the revealing work of the Holy Spirit, the revealing work of the Spirit. If you grab the notes, you saw that. And I'm cheating a little bit because we've already talked a bit about some of the revealing work of the Holy Spirit. When we talked about the Holy Spirit saves, one of the things that we saw is that part of the revealing work of the Holy Spirit is that he reveals who Christ is for the first time to any of us. So if you've come to follow Christ, you came to follow him because the Holy Spirit opened your eyes, right? And caused you to see who Christ truly was. And a lot of the scriptures that we're not gonna touch on today that talk about the revealing work of the Holy Spirit talk about the fact that he reveals to those who will listen, those who will receive, he reveals who Christ truly is, that he's the son of God, that he was crucified and raised from the dead and that all who believe in him can have life. That's, that's a big part of the Spirit's revealing work. We also talked about the Spirit's revealing work and how he leads us in God's plan for our life. That's what we talked about last week, right? So he reveals his plans for our future and causes us to walk in those That's a part of his revealing work. Excuse me. And we also talked about the revealing work of the Spirit. Uh, Or sorry, we will talk about the revealing work of the Holy Spirit next week when we talk about how the Holy Spirit purifies us, how he sanctifies us. That's That's the churchy word for it, but you can think just purifies us. What that means is that the Holy Spirit makes us more like Christ. With each passing day, that's his ambition, that's his desire, is that you and I would become more like Christ. And in order to do that, he reveals sin in our lives. Yeah, so everyone's excited to come next week. Because he does, he, just, he reveals sin in our lives so that we would see it, right? Which would be an absolute crushing burden if he didn't also reveal that Christ's grace is sufficient for that sin. That when he reveals it, he reveals that there's forgiveness, there's mercy to be found, there's grace to be had. Which is, which is why we can live in this sort of almost oxymoronic reality that we have as Christians where we're unafraid, we should be unafraid to have sin exposed and to seek and ask forgiveness. We don't have to be afraid because we know grace is given. Even if the person we have to ask forgiveness from won't give it to us, even if they withhold it, we know that Christ has not withheld it, right? He's not withheld it. He's, he's died on the cross so that we could have access to that. And so we repent of our sins. We confess it. I mean, how many of you ever felt the, the, you know you've sinned against someone, you know you've done something, you need to confess it, you need to go to someone, you need to tell them, and you just, it's just the worst moment in the world, isn't it? When the Holy Spirit kind of convicts you like you were wrong and you need to go and apologize and, and you're just thinking, oh, I really don't want to do that. I just really, really don't want to do that. It's hard for me every time. It has, I have found, and maybe some of you who have walked with Jesus longer than I have, will, will tell me that maybe at the you know, 50-year mark, it gets easy. I have not found, see, I came to Christ at seven years old. I'm 42, what is that, 35 years. So 35 years I've been walking with Jesus, and I, it has not gotten any easier for me. Every time it's hard. Okay, but I'm getting ahead of myself, because that's next week's sermon, all right? So what we're gonna talk about today is some specific ways that the Holy Spirit reveals that that's part of his work, okay? So look with me, if you want, 1 Corinthians chapter one, verse 22. In fact, actually, we're gonna begin in chapter two, and I'll go back to chapter one. So 1 Corinthians chapter two, beginning in verse six. The first thing that we see about the Spirit's revealing work, in addition to the kind of stuff I just pointed out, Today what we're going to talk about is the Spirit reveals wisdom. He reveals what truth is, and he reveals what wisdom looks like. That's a big part of the Spirit's revealing work. And he does that both generally and specifically, right? So this is kind of our roadmap for the day. 
we're gonna look at the reality that the Holy Spirit reveals generally what God's wisdom is, and you'll see that in a minute in 1 Corinthians chapter two. He also reveals specifically what wisdom looks like through what we call words of prophecy. That's something the scripture talks about. And so we're gonna talk about prophetic words today and how the Holy Spirit prophecies and what that looks like and how that's an impartment of wisdom to a specific situation for us so that we can expect that he would give us the wisdom that we need in moments that we need it. So look with me then at 1 Corinthians chapter two, beginning in verse six, and let's read together. It says this, says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Okay, so real quick right there, just in verse six, what Paul has given you is a synopsis of the whole uh, argument of chapter one and chapter two. In chapter one of 1 Corinthians, Paul spends his time talking about the fact that he does not proclaim worldly wisdom. He doesn't value worldly wisdom. In fact, he came to preach Christ and him crucified. Right, that's, that's kind of the summation of chapter one. But then in chapter two now he comes forward and he says, but we do, among those who are mature, in other words, those who are walking forward with Christ, we do proclaim true wisdom, not worldly wisdom, but godly wisdom or spiritual wisdom. So that's the comparison between chapter one and chapter two. In chapter one he's saying, we're not about wisdom, but what he means is not about worldly wisdom. In chapter two he says, we are about godly wisdom. You follow that? Okay, so that's the comparison. So then go forward with me now, verse seven. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That's a quote from Isaiah. And then in verse 10, he says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Okay, so did you see the Spirit in there at the end? In verse 10 and then in verse 11, the Spirit is doing this revealing work. It says, these things the Spirit reveals. We know them because the Spirit has revealed them. So the question that we have to ask is we have to back up and say, well, what are, what are the, these things that the Spirit is revealing? And the content of what the Spirit is revealing is essentially the cross of Jesus Christ. He's causing people to see that the cross, while to the world it may look like foolishness, he says in chapter one, to those who believe it is the very wisdom and power of God, the cross itself. And so in some sense we might read this and we would initially think, oh, well it's the whole saving work, the revealing work that the Spirit does to save us. He's, he's showing us that the cross while you might consider it foolishness, when you get saved, what you see is, oh, it's not foolishness. It's actually the wisdom of God, this thing called the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the very heart of what wisdom actually looks like, the cross of Jesus. And so we might think this is talking about the Spirit's revealing work just in terms of moving people towards salvation. But I would argue there's more at stake here, more at work here. What Paul is doing is helping us see that what the Spirit does is he reveals how the cross becomes a lens for every action that we partake of in our lives. And the reason I know that is because in verse six, he says, to the mature, we proclaim wisdom. In other words, what I'm telling you is 
about the, the wisdom the Spirit reveals is not just the wisdom of the cross for those who are perishing so that they might come to eternal life, but for those who are already mature, those who are already saved, those who are walking forward in Christ. And what the Spirit does is he reveals how to think about every area of our lives with the cross as the center of our wisdom. All right, church, does that make sense? So that I think to myself, in any situation, I have a given display of wisdom to measure any decision I want to make against it. Should I do this, what would the cross say about it? Should I do that, what would the cross say about it? Right, it's why he says in chapter one, verse 22 and 23, he says, Jews seek signs, in other words, they want, they want displays of power, and Greeks seek wisdom, and he means worldly wisdom, there are knowledge, Greeks seek wisdom, right? In other words, they want, they think knowledge is the key to salvation. The Jews think power is the key to salvation. But we preach Christ crucified. That's what we proclaim as the ultimate display of wisdom. See, the world has not changed. The world has always believed that power and knowledge are really good saviors, right? And you don't have to look that far to find, to find that that's still the case today. That knowledge and power are the ultimate saviors. Collect enough power, you'll be fine. Collect enough knowledge, you'll be fine. But what Paul is telling us is that's not wisdom. Wisdom does not look like that. What wisdom looks like is a crucified Savior. I know to the outside world, looking in, it looks like foolishness. How can you worship someone who was crucified for their teaching, for what they said and what they did? But we proclaim that Christ crucified is the very heart of wisdom. And so we reject, when, when we come across any decision in our life, <coughs> excuse me, and we're saying, Spirit, reveal to us what to do, the Spirit first and foremost points us to the cross of Jesus. Now remember when we talked about the leading of the Spirit last week, we said, what has the Spirit already revealed through his word? Do you remember that? We talked about what has he already, how has he already led us through his word? Well, this is very similar to that because what we're saying is, look, the cross is the center of the story of the Bible, Yes? The cross is the very center, the ethic of the cross. Love of God and love of neighbor, the fulfillment of the law is summarized in the cross. And so the cross always becomes for us a way in which we can, we can sort through any decision we have, right? It's the self-sacrificing love of the cross that should be displayed in every decision that I make. It should be the humility of the cross that I display, not self-aggrandizement or self-empowerment. It should be lowering of self. It should be sacrificial love. It should be, it should be embrace of the other, the one who's not like me. Because Christ, who is the ultimate unlike, right? The ultimate other, not like us because he's God on high, still chose <coughs> to embrace us as those who were not like him, but came to us and saved us and delivered us. And so the ethic of the cross becomes the determiner of wisdom for us. That's what Paul is really saying here. Let me give you a concrete example of that. In Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, Paul is going to tell husbands, he's going to say, husbands, love your wives, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Y'all familiar with that one? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When he says gave himself up, what's he pointing to? He's pointing to the cross. And he's saying, you want to know how to be a good husband? You want to know how to be a God-honoring husband? Look to the cross. At every turn, Figure out how to lay down your life so that she is more fully satisfied in Christ. 
As a husband, those of us who are husbands, we never get the option of saying, I'll do what's best for me today. Not if we want to portray the wisdom of the cross. There is no moment where I have an opportunity to serve by doing the dishes, an opportunity to serve by giving the kids the bath, an opportunity to serve by making the bed, an opportunity to serve by giving a compliment. There is no moment where it is appropriate for me as a husband to say, I don't want to do that today. I served enough yesterday. I'll take a break today. Because that is the absolute opposite of the wisdom of the cross. I see some of you husbands out there, you're like, come on, man. I'm with you. It's hard, right? This is why marriage lasts for our entire lives because it takes a long time to figure it out. I was on a prayer walk last night. I, I walk and pray a lot of times on Saturday nights just praying for us this morning. And I was thinking about this reality in Ephesians chapter five and I was thinking, Lord, I'm better at it than I was a decade ago, but man, do I have a long way to go. Man, do I, I mean, you know, but he's, he's teaching us. He's pointing us to the cross and he's saying, husbands, husbands, Love your wives. As Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. That means at every turn, take the sacrificial, make the sacrificial choice. At every turn, make the humble choice. At every turn, don't, don't stop, don't give up, right? Don't say my legs are weary. You haven't run far enough yet to say your legs are weary. Keep running. Keep going. Christ will provide you the strength. If that's not true, then we are, we're in big trouble. Okay, wives, do you want me to get started on the submit to your husband's part? You don't, do you? Yeah, that's there too. I'll let you go look at it later, all right? That's not the, the content of this sermon. All right, so let's talk then about specific. So that's the general. First uh, Corinthians chapter one and two. That's the general display of wisdom through the cross that Christ gives us. And then we come to specific words then. So let's talk about that for a minute. I say the word prophecy. Some of you get a little uneasy. Let me help you understand biblically what we're talking about, okay? So when we talk about the Spirit revealing through speaking prophetic words, let me make sure we understand a couple things about prophecy. One, when we talk about prophecy in current day, we're talking about something that's different than the kind of prophecy we see in the Old Testament Scripture or in the kind of prophecy that the apostles gave in the book of Acts and in the Gospels. And the reason is because in the Old Testament, there was a role that God appointed, and it was the role of prophet. It was a job, essentially, if you will. We call it an office. And what we mean by that is that God said, Isaiah, your job is to be a prophet on my behalf. And so, Jeremiah, your job is to be a prophet on my behalf. And they would say things like, thus saith the Lord. Have you read that in the Old Testament, right? right? And so they, they say that, and the very words that they are speaking are prophetic words, and they are equivalent in authority that because they become scripture. They become the very word of God. And so those prophets declare, thus saith the Lord. Same thing with the apostles who are essentially kind of the New Testament version of the Old Testament prophets. They had a job, a specific office. You and I are not apostles. They were apostles. That job no longer exists. It was for a specific group of men at a specific time right in the founding of the church. And Jesus, God, spoke through them prophetic words <coughs> and those prophetic words had, had the exact same authority as the word of God because they became the word of God, right? And so when we think about prophecy then, as you go forward in the New Testament, you find that in churches, there are people who are functioning as prophets. It's a role, but they're not the same as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, these Old Testament prophets. They are fallible. 
but they tend to, they seem to have a spiritual gift of this word of prophecy. So when we think about prophecy in the New Testament, a very basic definition is just reporting what the Spirit has spontaneously brought to mind. And we see that happening a lot in the New Testament. Spontaneous, or reporting what the Spirit has spontaneously brought to mind. I'm borrowing that definition from Wayne Grudem, his systematic theology. I think it's a helpful one. But reporting what the Spirit has spontaneously brought to mind. That could include words of encouragement, things we couldn't have known to, to, to bring to someone that would encourage or convict them. By the way, a word of encouragement can also be a conviction of sin that needs to be brought out or something that will take place in the future. Now, I said there's a difference between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament, and I talked about that. Let me give some examples of how we see the difference. So in Acts 21, we talked about it last week, actually. Acts 21, verses 10 through 14. We can look at it together, actually. So flip back, if you're in 1 Corinthians, flip back to the book of Acts. It's just a few pages back to the left. In Acts 21, verses 10 to 14, we see this. Paul, this is Paul talking, he says, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. Okay, which is kind of close to thus saith the Lord, but it's not quite the same. It says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So here's the thing I want you to see. In terms of this being a different type of prophecy than what happens in the Old Testament. When Isaiah prophesied in the Old Testament, there was, no, there was no question of like, well, what part of this is true? What part of it is not true? Isaiah is declaring, this is the word of the Lord. Every word that I'm uttering now is God's word. And there are people who didn't believe Isaiah, right? But they were God's very words. Here what we find is Agabus' prophecy, even if we just fast forward in the book of Acts, is not quite accurate. It's not actually the Jews who bind Paul. It's the who? It's the Romans who bind him. So there's something, you know, there's something just a little bit slightly off in the prophecy, the, the interpretation of the prophecy that they all give is, well, you should not go to Jerusalem. And Paul's response is, I, I need to go to Jerusalem. And so they corporately kind of come to an interpretation, understanding of what Paul should do. This is a very different way of handling prophecy than Old Testament prophecies would have been handled. So we begin to see that, that this type of prophecy is not a thus saith the Lord prophecy, but a report of perhaps a vision or something that's been seen or understood by Agabus, who's called a prophet. He's given that, that role of prophet as if it's a giftedness, something that regularly transpired through this guy. And we don't see the scripture saying, well, he was wrong and he's a false prophet because he didn't get it exactly right. Rather, we see them supporting his prophecy, saying it's, a good, it's good that he brought this word forward. Right? And there were prophets before him in the previous chapter that said the same thing to Paul. But we see that their understanding of how to live that out was a little bit off. So in a minute, we'll talk about how do you, how if these are kinds of things that God works through you, how do you go about handling that and knowing where there might be error, where there might be truth, right? The other thing we see is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. So again, now outside the book of Acts, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20, we see this. Well, actually, starting in verse 19, it says, Do not quench the Spirit. 
do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. In other words, the instruction Paul is giving us there is he's saying, when you receive a prophetic word, you need to measure it. You need to weigh it. You need to understand whether it's in alignment and agreement with the word of God, whether what parts of it are, are the Spirit's leading, and what aspects may not be as it's being reported through just a human, an ordinary human being, may be a little bit off and need to be thought through. You follow that? So that's what when he's saying, I want you to test it. Don't despise it. Don't say, oh, prophecy, no, we don't want it. Don't despise it, receive it, but test it, is what he's saying. So then, the question becomes, if Old Testament and apostolic prophecy were authoritative scripture, then should we think prophecy has, has ceased since this type of prophecy can no longer exist? In other words, let me, let me clarify that. No one who ever says, hey, I've received a word from the Lord, should think that that word will end up written in the Bible. Okay, so the canon of scripture, the book that is the word of God is closed, it's done. We don't add to it, we don't take away from it. And so any prophecy spoken in current day has to be spoken in submission and underneath the authority of that word. If it's out of alignment with it, then it's wrong. If it's in alignment with it, then there's the possibility that we move forward with it. So the question becomes, and and many have wrestled with this, is if you had in the Old Testament the role of prophet and then you had the role of apostle in the New Testament which is kind of akin to prophet in the Old Testament and they were prophesying and when they did it, it was, it was scripture. It, was, it was, ended up written into the very word of God. Then should we just think, you know what, that was for them and now God doesn't do that anymore because he's finished the scriptures. The scriptures are complete, right? And doesn't someone being able to say, hey, the Lord has given me a word, and then speaking that, doesn't that bring into question the sufficiency of Scripture, that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness and, and the revelation that we need in the Scriptures? I would argue no, and I'll give you two reasons why, okay? And I, I don't have time to go into all the depth of it, but I'll give you two reasons why. Number one, when you look through the New Testament, the spiritual gift of prophecy is one of the only gifts that shows up in every list of spiritual gifts, so in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4, it shows up, the spiritual gift of prophecy shows up in every one of the lists that talk about the spiritual gifts that the Spirit gives. I take from that that if the God has cho- chosen to give us the list of spiritual gifts, and none of them are a complete list, listing every gift the Spirit has to give, but if he's listing those and he makes a point to list prophets and prophecy in every one of them, my assumption is that he's telling us something through that. The second one is, my second reason for believing that prophecy still functions is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You can look with me now back at 1 Corinthians again. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and thanks for getting in the weeds with me. You guys are awesome, okay? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 through 10, Paul is talking about the importance of love. Now again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he's listed spiritual gifts and he's talked about how God has designed those for the building up of the body and how he gives, he gives a spiritual gift to everyone who is a follower of Christ. Everyone has a spiritual gift, at least one. And some they're stronger and some they're weaker. Some have more than one, some have several. And he's just saying, look, it's, it's all there for the building up of the body. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which we're gonna look at in a minute, he's gonna spend time talking about prophecy and the gift of tongues specifically and how those should function and how you should think about those. But in chapter 13, he's taking a little hiatus and he's saying, look, I'm talking about all these gifts, but the most important thing is love. The most important thing is that you be filled with love for one another. 
all the gifts and exercise the gifts in the world, all the power demonstrations of prophecy or leadership or teaching, they mean nothing apart from love poured out, right? And so then he says, though, in verse 8 of chapter 13, it says, love never ends. Again, one of the reasons why love is so important, it never ends. Isn't that a good word? Can we just stop there and say yes and amen to that? Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, okay, so that's the key right there. What did we just hear? Are prophecies going to stop? Yes. When are they going to stop? According to this, when the perfect comes, the impartial will pass away. And almost every commentator recognizes that 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the perfect coming is talking about the return of Christ. That when he returns, that's when the perfect has come. And not until then. That there's no, there's no point before then where we say, oh, prophecies have ceased because the perfect has now come. And the imperfect has gone away. You with me? So I think that's a good reason to think that all the spiritual gifts that God talks about are still in operation. They're still functioning. So I want you to remember something. I think this is um, an important reminder that I have to be reminded of regularly. It's dangerous to say that God is doing something when he's not the one doing it, Right? It's dangerous to say God is doing something when he's not the one doing it. But do you know that it's equally as dangerous to say God is not doing something when he is doing it? This was the error of the Pharisees when it came to Jesus. The Messiah had come, and the Pharisees were saying, that's not of God. And that was a really dangerous place to be. Those are equal dangers. And so our ambition, right, we talk about all the time, our, our highest value, to know God as he is, to know him as he is, to let the Spirit be all that the Spirit is, to let the Father be all that the Father is, to let the Son, and that's silly language, to even say let them be, right? You recognize how silly that is. They are, they don't need our approval, right? But to, but to receive all that they are. Okay, so let's then talk about, you'll see the third point in the notes is just advice for receiving and sharing prophetic words. If if my understanding of what the scriptures are teaching us here is correct, right, and some can disagree with me, but if we're correct, that prophecy is still a gift that functions, but it's not the same in authority as Old Testament prophecy or apostolic prophecy. It's not gonna be scripture. Then how should we think about it? How should we practice it? And praise God, he's given us 1 Corinthians 14 because it's, it's a great guide for us about how we put this into practice and do so in a controlled way, in a reasoned way, in a way that comes underneath the authority of scripture. So, I've listed these in there. I did a little fill in the blank because some of you, it helps you pay attention, all right? So, so advice for receiving and sharing prophetic words. Again, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The first one is this. Measure all impressions that you receive from the Spirit against the Word and against the cross. Measure all impressions. Go back to what we said. The cross is the ultimate display of wisdom. Therefore, the Spirit will not reveal something that seems to be wisdom, that purports something other than the ethic of the cross, right? It's the illustration I used about marriage and saying, if I wanna know how to live as a godly husband, then I look to the cross and I try to display that in my marriage. And at no point should I say, you know what really the Spirit is revealing to me is that I should sit on the couch all day and serve no one. 
That's not of the Spirit. The Spirit's never going to reveal that, right? Because that's not in accordance with the Word, and it's not in accordance with the ethic of the cross, which is the very center of the Scriptures. So that's the first thing that we see. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 19, talks about this when it says this. Um, find verse 19. There it is. He's comparing tongues and prophecy, and we don't have time to get into all the stuff he says about tongues here, but one of the things he says, which is really interesting, is he says when you speak in tongues, your mind is unfruitful. In other words, there seems to be some type of activity going on where you're a little less um, in your head space. <coughs> but then he says about prophecy, he says he prefers prophecy because it builds others up. And he says, nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind. He's talking about prophecy there in a, in a, as opposed to tongues. I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So the thing that he's saying is, when it comes to prophecy, he's saying, your mind is engaged in this process. In other words, for you to measure what impression you have brought to mind is an important thing because your mind is not unfruitful in this moment, but your mind and your spirit are both engaged in the activity of prophecy. One of the things I think we can learn from that is this, is that when I receive receive an impression, a spontaneous revelation from the Spirit, and I think, okay, is that from you, and what should I do with it? That I measure it first against the Word of God. And of course, I don't just assume that every impression I have is of the Lord. You with me? And I go and I measure it. And, I, and then if it measures well, if it comes underneath the authority of Scripture, if it agrees with, the, with what Scripture teaches and with the ethic of the cross, then I can kind of say, okay, now it agrees. So is doesn't guarantee it's from the Lord, but I can take a next step. I can say, okay, maybe this is a word to be shared then. Okay. Um, I love this. this. is Donald Gee, who's a more charismatic guy. He actually says this, don't depend on prophecy as the main way of God leading and imparting truth to you. He says, through the scripture, most followers make their decisions through what he calls, and this is the term I really like, through sanctified common sense. And I like that. Because what Guy is saying is like, look, when you look to make what is a little less, what is less regular, when you look to it to be your most regular version of how you get guidance and leading, you're gonna make a lot of mistakes. So the most common way the Spirit guides us is through sanctified common sense underneath the authority of Scripture. But that doesn't mean he doesn't give specific words at different times. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse three, the second thing I think that's just a good piece of advice for receiving and sharing prophetic words is does it build up another believer? That's the second question asked. Does it build up another believer? And I already said this, but build up could mean bring a word that they need to turn from the direction they're going, okay? When, I hear, when you hear me say build up, don't hear me say only make them feel good about themselves because build up might look like saying, brother, sister, you're headed down a dangerous path and you need to turn around. Would that build them up? Yeah, I hope you say yes, all right? I, I alluded to that survey, that evangelistic survey, and I don't remember the percentages because I didn't write it down for myself this week. But one of the things that a younger generation, uh, it was a high percentage said, is that if you, if you disagree with someone, then you are not loving them. That that's, so we, we have a rising generation that is really equating those two things. And that's, that's, a, that's a false equivalency, okay? To say to someone, and we as a church have to teach that. We really have to get after that one. Because if we spend all of our lives, if a younger generation rising is gonna spend their lives thinking, anytime someone disagrees with me, they are not loving me well, or they are judging me, 
then we're going to be left with a whole lot of people who no one can ever say anything to them other than you get the trophy, right? Other than like, you're, you're doing it great. And we really, as Christians, do we understand that's not a Christian worldview? Like a Christian worldview always includes someone being able to correct me, someone being able to have authority in my life and say, that's a bad direction you're going and you need to turn around, right? We believe that first and foremost because we see the scriptures have authority over us. And God himself speaks to us through his word and says, nope, you need to submit to what I've told you is the right way, right? And then when godly people come into our lives, look, there is almost nothing more tragic, almost nothing more tragic than having no godly influences in your life that you trust to speak a word of correction to you. You need that. You and and I need that. Like we never get to the place in life. I don't care, when I'm 85, I'm still going to need godly influences in my life to speak a word of correction to me. Always, like there's never the moment where I won't need that. And that's true for you too. But 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse three, He's, again, he's comparing tongues and prophecy. And in verse three, he says, on the other hand, the one who prophecies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. In other words, one of the things he's saying is why, why prophecy is better than tongues. Is he's in, you speak in tongues and people don't understand what you're saying. They need to be interpreted and he goes into all this stuff. But he's saying, when you prophecy, you're speaking for the upbuilding of those that you are speaking to. So, what we can learn from that, from this text, is that one of the measures of whether a word is from the Lord is does it build up fellow believers? Does it build them up, right? The next one that we see, oh, I'll, I'll give an example of that. Just one from uh, this week in my own life. I was praying for one of our precious little ones uh, in our church family who was go, who's going in for surgery this week, um, a heart valve surgery, and it's a serious deal. And I'm a little under the weather, and so I couldn't go be with her to pray, but I was gonna pray, so I just called, called her family and said, let me pray for you over the phone. And so we were praying, and, and I think Ephesians chapter six, verse 18, when it says pray at all times in the spirit, means like listen to the spirit while you're praying and see if there's anything he wants to speak or anything he wants to show you. And as I was praying for her, I said, what specifically can I pray for you? And she said, I'm scared to sleep in the hospital overnight. I, I, that's scary to me. And so I said, okay, well, let's pray about that. And as I was praying about that, I just, I had a picture of a teddy bear in my head. So again, I'm like, I don't know what that means, right? But what I did in that moment was I ran it through my grid, right? I just disagree with scripture. I'm not sure teddy bears are anywhere in scripture, you know, agreeing, disagreeing, right? I said, would it, will it build her up? I thought, I, th- I think so. I think so. And so I just said, I said, Emma, I just, here's what I prayed. I prayed, Lord, would you have someone give Emma a teddy bear? that she could hold on to during surgery. And not during surgery, but like when she's going to bed at night, that would comfort her and make her feel peace. And we finished the prayer, and her parents said, somebody just gave her a teddy bear. And it has a little zipper on it, and it's got a little heart, you know, heart surgery sort of deal. And says, I said, well, Emma, I think that perhaps the Lord is just going to use that as a comfort to you over the next week in the hospital. So just hang on to that teddy bear. Have it, have it close by. I think the Lord is just gonna comfort you through that, right? This is a little thing. This is not some major ordeal, right? And if I had been wrong and no one gave her a teddy bear, it's not the end of the world. But just trying to respond to that and pray then, God, would you, would you bring this about through a, you know, a picture that was in my mind as I was trying to listen to the Spirit and pray for her. But again, does it build her up? And the answer was yes, so I felt comfortable going forward in that. Now the next one is, does it convict an unbeliever of their need for Christ? 
does this prophetic word convict an unbeliever of their need for Christ? So go down to verse 24 and 25 of chapter 14. We're gonna hit the last couple pretty quick here. Verse 24 and 25 say this. <coughs> he says, but if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. In other words, when prophecy happens in the body, what Paul says is the reason this is so much better than tongues as a gift is because when you prophecy, not only are believers built up, but unbelievers are convicted that they're in need of the grace of God that's only found in Jesus Christ. And so there's another parameter for us to think about. Uh, Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology actually talks about this. He said there's a missionary speaking in a conservative Baptist church in an evening service, and the balcony was unlit, and a gentleman had slipped in, and no one noticed him. It was his first time to ever walk in the, wall, in the, in the doors of the church. He'd never been there before. No one knew him. The, the missionary did not see him, but the moment he walked in, the missionary all of a sudden felt he received a revelation from the Spirit and said, someone in here has just left your wife and family, and God is telling you you need to return and learn his ways for family life. And that's exactly what had just happened to the gentleman who'd walked in and never been in that church before. He came down afterwards, said, that was me, repented of his sin, came to Christ, went home, and returned to his family, right? So that's, that's just a good demonstration of the Spirit giving a, a revealing word to someone who was not yet a believer so that they would see that God knows the details of your life and you need him. So that's another thing we see in 1 Corinthians 14. Last couple are these. Uh, in verse 29 through 33, it talks about, look, if you're prophesying and someone else gets a word of prophecy, then you sit down and let them go. We can do this in an orderly fashion. So another question becomes, not only is it from the Lord, but can I share it in an orderly way? Can I share it at the right time and in the right place? When you receive a word from the Lord, from the Spirit, if he reveals something to you, it doesn't mean it has to be shared at that moment, right? Right? So you take into consideration what's the right time, what's the right place, what's the right context. As an example, if you felt that you received a prophetic word while you were sitting here on Sunday, you should not charge the stage, okay? What you should do is find one of our elders, share that prophetic word with them, say, I'm wondering if this is from the Lord. Could you help me discern it? And our elders will help you discern that and determine whether or not it's something that the whole body needs to have shared with them or not. And don't be offended when they say no, <laughs> right? Because this is what it looks like, a prophecy under authority, right? To give that under authority. Now, last couple is this. Present what God has revealed with humility, right? So we don't say, thus saith the Lord. What we say is, I, I think this may be from the Lord. As I prayed and listened to him, this was the picture I had in my mind. This is the thought. This is the repeated phrase. I just wanted to share it with you. Does that have any meaning for you? Or does it strike you as being from the Lord? You give invitation, right, not imperative. Invitation, not imperative. You know the difference between those two things. An imperative is a command. The Lord has said this, you must do this. Be very wary of that. Invitation, not imperative, when it comes to receiving a revelation from the Spirit. Have a posture of expectation in prayer 
So again, I talked about Ephesians chapter six, verse 18, pray in the spirit. Revelation chapter one, verse 10 has a similar phrase where John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and the Lord gave me a revelation. Literally the book of Revelation, right? So those two phrases I think are very similar. So they, they, they kind of, you can compare them together and understand that part of what Paul may mean in Ephesians when he says pray at all times in the spirit is pray in such a way that you have an openness to whatever the spirit wants to reveal to you while you're praying. So to wait, to listen, and to have a sense of expectation. Again, not that this is the regular way that he will always lead you, that you must receive a prophetic word or vision or dream or whatever it may be before you can do anything. Again, sanctified common sense, yes? Sanctified common sense. But to pray with an openness to that reality and a sense of expectation that God perhaps would want to do that. And then the last one is this. Oh, and I would say when you're praying, pay attention to vivid pictures and phrases in prayer. Pay attention to persistent thoughts in prayer. And pay attention to particular sense of urgency in prayer. Those things often mark the voice of the Spirit. And then the last is ask God for these kinds of revelations and step into them gradually. So if you were to go home today and say, you know, I'd love to receive these kinds of words from the Lord in prayer. Recognize a couple things. One, the Spirit, uh, the Scriptures talk about this as a spiritual gift. Prophecy is a spiritual gift. Now, in the same way that teaching is a spiritual gift, here's what I take from that. I don't have the spiritual gift of prophecy. This is not a regular way that God operates through me, yet at moments God will speak something to me in the same way that someone who doesn't have the spiritual gift of teaching can still do some teaching, yes? Some of you are not gifted teachers. Doesn't mean you're not gonna teach at some point a Bible study or something true from the scriptures. You're gonna bring it forward and teach. People with the spiritual gift of teaching tend to be more effective in the use of that. Same thing with this. It's no different. It's not a better gift. It's not a worse gift. It's just a gift from the Spirit. And if it's a spiritual gift, then some of you will have it and you'll operate it with a particular sense of power and poignancy. And those of you who don't, doesn't mean God won't use this in you, but it's often less frequent. And that's what I find for myself. This is less frequently something that takes place in my own walk with the Lord. And yet, I ask God for it. I, I wait upon him, but I don't, I don't hold him as if my walk with you is incomplete, Lord, until you give me this. He's given me other spiritual gifts, and my job is to put those to use. Do you follow me? You with me? Okay, good. So don't exalt it. But don't, you know, don't squash it down, is what I would say. All right, we're gonna come to the Lord's table now. I hope, as we look at the revealing work of the Holy Spirit, that that is helpful to you. So servers, if you'll come. As we come to the table, as always, if you are not a follower of Jesus. We want to invite you to let the elements pass today. And the reason for that is that we are displaying our faith in him through partaking of these elements. They represent his body and his blood to us. They are symbolic elements through which we're reminded of the salvation we have in Christ. Our hope is, as we come to this table, we are pointing to the ultimate revelation of the Spirit. Yes, church? The ultimate revelation of the Spirit in the cross of Christ, that his blood his body, sacrifice for us, give us life. He instructs us, church family, when we come to the table, that we do so not in a lighthearted way, not in a trivial way, but that we hold our lives in front of him and we say, Holy Spirit, convict us where there's sin, encourage us where encouragement is needed, but we don't partake of them as if the sacrifice doesn't call us to surrender our lives fully and completely to him. So every time we hold the elements, we're reminded 
that the call of God is complete surrender to the person of Jesus Christ.